99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Democracy Forum with your host, Ann Luther, is up next. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Democracy Forum. This is the first program in our 2018 series to broadcast at this time on the third Friday of most months. We're featuring topics in Maine's participatory democracy, encouraging citizens to take an active role in government and politics. This program is a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Our conversation today is about primary elections. What are they good for? We'll talk about how primaries have changed over the last 50 years, whether they're still working for the parties and the voters, what changes are on the horizon here in Maine. We'll be taking your calls during the second half of the show, so stand by to join the conversation. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. I'll be your host today for the Democracy Forum, and let me introduce our guests. Joining us in the studio today is Jill Goldthwaite. Jill is the former Maine State Senator and award-winning political columnist for the Ellsworth American and the Mount Desert Islander. Welcome, Jill. Thanks. Good morning. Also with us in the studio is Kevin Ray. Kevin is a former president of the Maine State Senate, former chief of staff to U.S. Senator Olympia Snow, and currently, and then and always, owner and operator of Ray's Mustard. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you very much. Great to be here. And joining us on the phone is Dan Shea. Dan is a professor of government at Colby College. Welcome, Dan. Hi, Ann. Glad to be here. Uh, So thank you all for joining us. It's primary season in Maine. Things are starting to gear up. We have no less than 25 candidates running for governor at this time. Uh, 16 of them will be eliminated in the June 12th primary if they're all still on the ballot at that point, if they don't drop out before then. We also have contested primaries in other races, including the second uh, congressional district Democratic primary. Some important decisions about who stands for election next November will be made in the primary. Yet voter turnout in primary elections is historically quite low. In 2010, the last time we had an open seat for governor, there were about 250,000 votes cast for the major party candidates in the gubernatorial primary. That would be out of an estimated 1 million eligible voters in Maine. Even enrolled party members participated at a less than 50% rate. So what's going on? Is this really working for us? Um, Dan, I'd like to let you give us sort of a general overview. What are the purpose of primaries Who are they supposed to serve, and just generally, how are they working in the 21st century? Well, I should start by saying you've picked a great topic. You know, an old party boss once said, I don't care who does the electing as long as I do the nominating. (laughs) Um, They go back, primaries go back actually to the midpoint of the uh, 19th century, I actually know where they began. They began in Crawford County, Pennsylvania. So why would I know such an obscure fact? Uh, Before I came to Colby, I taught at Allegheny College, which is in Crawford County. And down at the county courthouse, there's a big plaque that says the birthplace of the direct primary. So they go all the way back to the midpoint, um, but they really didn't um, become popular. They didn't jump into vogue until the 1880s and uh, 1890s, and they were part of the progressive movement as a way to minimize the impact of party bosses. Right? So at that time, party bosses simply picked, hand-picked uh, candidates. 
um, and the candidates that would be beholding to their will. So the idea was to allow rank-and-file average Democrats, average Republicans, uh, to pick the nominees. And they've been used throughout uh, the country ever since. Um, The story of the presidential uh, nomination process is a bit different. Um, But I do think you opened up uh, with a very important point. And it's not simply that so few Americans join in. It's a particular type of person. It's a particular type of partisan that tends to be part of the the nomination process. Um, It is controversial. Uh, There are some suggestions uh, emerging about what to do about the nomination process. We're seeing that here in in Maine as well. Um, So to, to, to round out, I congratulate you for picking an important topic. Well, thanks. Um, Jill or Kevin, who wants to jump in? I mean, the parties are, um, I mean, these are party primaries. Are the primaries working for the parties, building party cohesion, choosing candidates that that serve the party's interests? Are they working for the people? I see you nodding, Kevin. Well, I I think that that certainly primaries are a, a vast improvement over caucuses. They're a vast improvement over uh, smoke-filled rooms with party bosses deciding who are going to be the nominees. Uh, but I think that they could be uh, improved uh, even further. Um, I think we've seen over the past uh, uh, decade or so uh, increasingly the nominees that are being produced uh, by party primaries are increasingly polarized um, with um, uh, Democrats nominating people who are more and more liberal and Republicans nominating people who are more and more conservative. Um, and I think that, frankly, having an open primary uh, would be a very healthy thing. And I think that the the vast center where most people still reside in this country uh, would then be better represented in terms of uh, who gets nominated for these positions. Not to say that in every case uh, the more centrist candidate would win. That certainly wouldn't be the case. But I think that they would have uh, a greater voice. And I think that that, frankly, would go a long way toward healing some of the hyper-partisanship and, and the extreme polarization that exists right now in American politics. Dan, what about that? I'll turn to you because you're a, a political scientist. Is there evidence from other states that have open primaries or semi-open primaries that they moderate the candidate selection or increase voter participation? And I'll just ask you to explain to people the difference between open and semi-open while you're at it. Right. So the difference is that in open primaries, you need not be a registered member of the party to vote. Now, some places are what we call semi-open, where you have to register the day of the primary. So you might be Republican a day or two before. When you go, you can switch, become a Democrat, and vote in the Democratic primary. Other systems are wide open, where you don't have to declare a partisanship when you vote. Um, But those are a little bit different than what Kevin was suggesting. Kevin seems to be suggesting a model that's Um, taken over in a few states out west, California in particular, is called the top two model. And that is there really are no parties per se. People can run as a partisan, but but there is one primary event where the top two vote-getters go on to the general election ballot. And um, I think, Kevin, on one level, I think Kevin might be right that that would push 
things towards the center. Um, but I will tell you that I don't think it works particularly well when one party is real dominant. In the California model, it's, it's simply uh, a Democratic uh, contest. Uh, um, the Republicans really don't have a shot in the top two model. But it, yet again, it's a, people are thinking about this. Kevin's right. People are thinking about this, ways to make this better. That's actually not. I, I didn't have the California model in mind. I, I'm actually talking about uh, the, the type of primary where you can go in and without uh, registering with yeah. either party, you can choose which ballot to pull. Uh, and you can either vote in the Republican primary or the Democratic primary. So Jill, That's what I had in mind. Jill, let, let me give you a chance to explain how that works in Maine right now. If you're an unenrolled candidate, what do you do in the primary? Well, uh, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and one thing that hasn't been mentioned is, uh, you know, a lot of people who are in parties say, well, just go in and you can enroll and then, you know, you're a Democrat or a Republican for a day. You're a Democrat or a Republican for 90 days. You cannot leave the that party. And that actually inflates uh, party registration in a way that doesn't really reflect the voter. But there are some people who feel strongly about enough about voting in the primary so that they're willing to register. But then you can't unregister from that party for 90 days after the election. So that's one Issue. That's how it works, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, we haven't also mentioned the fact that, as Kevin described, the party primaries produce the two party candidates, and then the more than one-third of voters who are not enrolled in a party, that's who they get to pick from. And we are paying for those primaries. So all taxpayers share in covering the cost of those primary elections, even though independents are disenfranchised. So back to the evidence, Dan. Um, like I know like states – like Wisconsin have wide open primaries, others do too, and some have semi open primaries. Do those states experience higher rates of participation in their primary elections than Maine does? Um, modestly so. It is true that there's higher levels, but it doesn't doesn't jump up to anything significant. I will say there's some worry, and I'm not sure if it's a red herring, and maybe Kevin could jump in on this as well. This idea that open primaries lead to strategic voting from the other side. Um, so the idea is that if you can go in and cast a ballot for either party during a primary, there's some thought that the opposition will go in and vote for a candidate in the primary and the other party that they think is weakest. So, Dan, <laughs> if if independent voters were that well-organized yeah. and that strategic, well, I don't think we would he, probably I, well, no. It wouldn't, I, be, it wouldn't be independent voters. So it would be, for example, it would be Republican voters, Republican partisans, jumping in the Democratic primary and picking and voting for who they believe to be the weakest Democrat. Right. So in it, we you, can't even get ourselves out to vote and <laughs> a number is more than 21 percent of the electorate. I just I seriously doubt that anybody is going to pull off some kind of a campaign to undermine somebody's primary. Well, so, I mean, that would be a totally open primary in which Democrats could vote in the Republican primary and unenrolled could vote in either party. And um, Dan, I'll give you a chance to Talk about the evidence. Do people do that kind of strategic no, it's, voting? No, it's pretty light. There's some, but it's not much. I think your point's really well taken. You know, I, you know, I'm an old parties guy. My mom was party chair. I, I'm sort of a closed primary 
uh, guy. That is to say, I think that the people of the party should pick their nominee. Um, Dan, do you think the people of the party should pay for that primary election then? Well, that's that's an interesting piece too, right? So the courts have said that parties are quasi-public institutions. They're somewhere in between private and public. This came to a head, for example, in the South when a number of southern states had white-only primaries, and they made the claim that we can do what we want. We're a private organization. The Democratic Party is a private organization. We can do what they want. And the court said, well, you're, it, you're not. You know, you're not just a private or private organization. You're somewhere in the middle where you perform this public good, you know, our system is structured around the two parties. And in that sense, it makes sense that the, that the government should be able to regulate primaries and also pay for primaries. So some have been arguing, and we did a show on this a couple of months ago, that the, the parties are losing efficacy through lots of different um, mechanisms and that um, American democracy would be better off if the parties were stronger, not weaker. Um, is there any thought that having closed primaries makes the party stronger? Kevin, what do you think? I just view it as <clears throat> I'm sort of on a, um, a mission to eliminate the polarization that I think is tearing the country apart. And uh, there are so many factors uh, that contribute to it. I think the fact that we we have uh, these echo chambers uh, for various points of view where people can tune into the station that uh, reinforces their own preconceived uh, notions. I think it's dangerous. I think it's it's added to the divisiveness of the country. I think that uh, I think that the primary system and particularly the closed primary system. Um, has also contributed to it because the people who are listening to these echo chambers and getting all of their news filtered uh, through an ideological prism uh, then go and vote in their respective primaries and are nominating people who are further and further uh, apart and polarizing. And I, I just think I think it's one of the most dangerous things facing our country right now. Um, and the you know the sort of the 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 mentality uh and the the rudeness uh that we see uh you know repeated over and over and over again on our twenty four hour news stations has permeated society i mean it's permeated social media it's permeated it's permeated uh conversations at the coffee shop. I just think it's dangerous. And any chance that I see that where we can uh, help to lessen the impact of that polarization, I'm for it. So what do you think, Jill? Would an open primary make our primaries more, our elections more civil? I don't know that they would make them more civil, but I do think they might have one other beneficial effect. And that is, I think these Elections we have been having with large pools of candidates are problematic. We need some way to get to a head-to-head vote if no one gets a majority of the vote um, on the the first run. And the benefit of the open primaries is that 
you would have more people contributing theoretically to who the candidates were. Right now, as Kevin described, you tend to get two very ideological candidates. And I think that encourages more people who are not in the two major parties to enter the race. And that's fine with me. I think, you know, a big candidate pool like that is good. But given the fact that we end up with – winners who have received a very low percentage of the vote, somewhere along the way, we we need to get closer either by ranked choice voting, runoff elections, whatever, um, to a, a head-to-head election. And opening the primaries might mean we ended up with a smaller candidate pool who was satisfactory to more of us. Okay, now I want to get the terms straight, and I'm going to take a station break, and then I'm going to come back and do a little dictionary definition here, okay? So um, we're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU-FM this morning. This is Ann Luther, the League of Women Voters of Maine. Our topic today is primary elections. What are they good for? Our guests this morning are Jill Goldthwait, political columnist, Kevin Ray, longtime Republican politician, and Dan Shea, professor of government at Colby College. And we've been talking about open versus closed primaries. And um, I, I, I want to just do a little definition here. Let's say an open primary is one where a candidate, regardless of their enrollment status, can vote any party they want. So, right. And I, I misspoke. And I'm used to the terminology of open, meaning independents can vote. But well, I know there is a distinction with these semi-open uh, or semi-closed. Or so a semi-open primary would be one where an unenrolled candidate could choose which party they wanted. And let's call it a top two primary. Or, or an a, unenrolled voter. Yeah, exactly. Yes, what did I voter. say? Candidate. candidate. Oh, thank you. Yeah. And then a jungle primary would be, or an, a top two primary would be one where all the candidates, regardless of party, appear on the same ballot in the top two vote-getters, regardless of party, advance to the general election. That's what California has. Mm-hmm. And um, I think Dan can probably, just for our listeners' sake, talk to some of the anomalies that have come up in California regarding... And I, the, I wonder if Dan jungle. could also help me understand why anyone would be proposing to allow a party member to vote in the opposite primary. I'm not sure I understand that. Well, that is the system that Wisconsin has. Many I, I know that, that, but I don't know, I don't know why. why. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Well, I'm not sure of the rationale, um, but that is uh, about 15 of the states are what we call this completely open system where um, your registration, your party enrollment, I should say, um, is not checked as you go to the primary. So you go to the to the polling place, and you simply head over towards the Republican ballot or the Democratic ballot, and they don't check your your party enrollment. It's sort of a wide-open system. You'd be, I guess, in a sense, you'd be picking your party at that point. But if you don't mind, I'd like to just back up to Kevin's thought for a second. Um, I think it's absolutely spot on. You know, um, it is the great issue of our day. The polarization in American politics, it is really significant, you know. It's what I've been teaching about and writing and reading about for a few years. I did come across something just recently, an interesting piece about about how we might move things in a different direction. And it's really, in a sense, an opposite of what we're talking about. That is, why now? I'm just. This is just for the sake of argument. Okay, I'm not taking this position per se, but one possibility to make sure that we get more moderate candidates 
in the general election is to reboot the party leadership and the control of the party. So the argument is that we wouldn't have wound up, for example, with Donald Trump as the Republican nominee if the Republican establishment had more of a say in the process. So the the system at the presidential level level was elite-driven all the way through the 1968, past the 1968 Democratic Convention, when there was an implosion in the Democratic Party. Um, And what the argument is that throughout American history, there have been a number of demagogues, a number of sort of far-out-there candidates in both parties that were heading towards the nomination, but were pulled back by the party elites. You could talk about George Wallace in 1960, I'm sorry, 1972, 68 and 72, for example. George Wallace had about 40% of the Democrats behind him nationwide. He didn't come anywhere near getting the nomination in 1968 because the party bosses pulled him back. So for the sake of argument, something to think about, should we consider moving back towards these smoke-filled rooms? So, of course, so long as the smoke-filled rooms are diversified themselves. We're not talking about just old white men. Right. Well, and um, I mean, that gets back. A, a little bit to the question about that I wanted to ask about superdelegates. I mean, that's mm-hmm. sort of the way the Democratic Party has done a little bit of um, of what you're talking about, about bringing party elites more into the nominating process, at least on, on the presidential side. Um, that was tremendously controversial for the Democrats this year. Lots of people didn't like it. You know, on the other hand, maybe Republicans wished they had a superdelegate system. I don't know. Um, what do you think? Kevin, I see you. Well, I think, you know, it's an interesting notion to hear, you know, Dan, what Dan said. But, but I do not think that the answer is to put more power in, in the hands of, of, of party elites. Uh, I think that that really flies in the face of what I believe. I think uh, the answer is in opening the process up to more people. And I think opening the process up to those people – uh, and when, when I talk about an open primary, um, what I really have in mind is, I guess, is a, is a semi-open primary. What I have in mind is that people who are unenrolled can choose to vote in either in either primary uh, without enrolling. Uh, going through the act of enrolling in a primary on election day, uh, only to unenroll ninety days later, uh, to me, it's just that's silly. That's mm-hmm. why, why, why are you putting people through that? And, and frankly, there are a number of people who feel so strongly about being independent that they simply won't do that. They won't, they won't pick a party uh, because they either have problems with both parties uh, or for whatever reason uh, don't want to affiliate uh, with just one party. So, but I think if you open the process up to more participation in a wider swath of Americans and a wider swath of Mainers, uh, it's going to be more inclusive and you're going to have candidates emerge who more closely reflect the true electorate right? and not the two uh, extreme echo chambers on either end, but where most people still reside, which is in the broad middle where people are you know, solution-driven instead of uh, ideological-driven. And I think it would be much healthier and, and uh, that we don't need to consolidate power uh, in the hands of, of the party elites to get at the problem. Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, Dan is saying that the evidence does not suggest that that would really result in a 
major boost to participation in the primary, you know, but I guess it can't hurt. I mean, what do you think, Jill? Well, I I, I would begin with the I guess it can hurt. And um, I, I think it would take some time for people to kind of settle into a new process and figure out how to deal with that um, and so on. So I, I'm not sure how that evidence is gathered. I'm not a statistician and I, I don't uh, have Dan's depth of knowledge about how one looks at those things and, and decides that it does or doesn't make much of a difference. But I would sure be willing to try. Well, let's ask Dan, how do they figure out from state to state and election to election whether uh, semi-open primaries increase voter participation? Well, there are two ways you can either do before and after of a, a state that's changed, or you can compare like states, one that has an open system and one that doesn't. You could compare in the same year, or you could do a sort of a time-based comparison. Um, you know, I think, I think, as I said, I think there's some evidence uh, of increase in, in more open systems. Um, but it doesn't, I'm just trying to think, if it's a multi-candidate event, right, so there's, say, 8 or 10 or 15 candidates, I'm not sure how it would mitigate against the block of extremists on either side, right? Mm-hmm. So maybe Kevin has thought that through. You know, how would the hardcore right or hardcore left not prevail in a multi-candidate race? I guess I guess perhaps because they're more at the center, Well, they, um, they... which is sort of an open question these days on partisanship, right? There's a lot of Mainers, a lot of Americans in the center, but boy, the each of the sides has grown in recent years. They they would prevail, sorry for interrupting, um, by by virtue of um, a voter turnout. And with a 20% turnout, all kinds of cross-sections of the electorate could prevail. But one of the benefits of allowing independents to vote in the primaries is that you would have a somewhat broader base. Right now, you know, if you take voter turnout... And you um, factor in the number of candidates. Somebody's coming out of that primary with two or three or four percent of the vote. I mean, I think that fourteen-person Democratic primary, the vote's going to be distributed quite widely. And um, likewise, I think they're five in on the Republican side. And these people, these candidates who are going to be who we vote on in the general election will have received a tiny fraction of the vote. So if you allowed independents to vote, it could, first of all, it will add those voters to um, primary voters. And second of all, it could inspire more party members to come out and vote. And that would be a good thing. Well, I mean, you could also use a runoff. Right. And and of course, we will have, um, I mean, it looks like we're going to have ranked choice voting in the primary election this year, which may be another possible, um, you know, solution to some of these problems. But I mean, it sounds like Dan is saying, if we have 25% participation in the primary now, if we open the primary, we may go from 25 to 26 or 27%. We're not going to go from 25 to 40%. I mean, that, that's what I hear Dan saying. Is that I right? Find it, I, I find it hard to believe that if you opened up primaries to independents and, they under, and independents understood they could now participate in primaries, 
that you wouldn't that you would only see one or two percent increase. I agree. That's you know, unfathomable again, I, yeah, to me. I don't I don't understand well, that either. Might, it's it certainly might be as much as five or eight. Okay. So not two, but five. Well, you know, remember only about half of Americans, much higher in Maine, actually, as we all know, but only about half of Americans turn out to vote in the general election. That could change. <laughs> I have a feeling that maybe, I guess, if you could call it the upside of polarization is that voter turnout might improve, which would be a very healthy thing. Well, and of course, a lot of the evidence, Dan, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that voter participation in primaries is a lot more significantly driven by the candidates and interest in the candidates and how competitive the election is than it is in anything else. Is that true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Most, a vast preponderance of primary contests are not competitive. So it sort of skews the, it skews the turnout, right? Um, you know, in, whenever an incumbent runs, for example, if there's a challenger against an incumbent, those primaries are always almost always not competitive. So, um, you know, there's a lot of variance, and some states are more open on when this can happen, right? Um, one of the big issues that we're, the nation's been thinking about lately is the length of time that voting should happen and the mechanisms for voting to happen. You know, perhaps we could get at uh, where where we're thinking if we opened it up to uh, uh, Internet-based primary voting. We could we should think a little bit about that. It might be cheaper and easier and faster, uh, get more people engaged. I think we probably, you know, but given the Russian scare, I'm not sure everyone's quite anxious to jump on that quite yet, but, you know, um, maybe there are other ways to get at the nomination process that could... Uh, push more moderate candidates to the general election. Um, I'm going to take another little break here, but um, does one of you can answer after the break, um, what are the parties in Maine and how do you get to be a party in Maine? How do you get to have a primary in, in Maine? We'll take that question up after this short announcement. So at this point, um, I'd like to invite listeners to join our conversation. You're tuned to the Democracy Forum on WERU. This is Ann Luther from the League of Women Voters of Maine. And our guests this morning are Jill Goldthwaite, a political columnist, Kevin Ray, a longtime Republican politician, and Dan Shea, professor of government at Colby College. Our topic today is primary elections. What are they good for? If you have a question or comment, you can join our conversation by calling toll-free 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. Um, We have only one listener line open today, so be patient if you get a busy signal. If you do get through, please take your answer off the line so that somebody else can call in behind you. Uh, Don't wait till the last minute. Get your call in early. So let's take up that question. How do the parties qualify in Maine, and who gets to have a primary? Who knows? Perhaps Dan would be best suited to answer it. I know that uh, to qualify as a party, uh, you have to receive a a minimum uh, percentage of the vote in a previous, I believe, gubernatorial election. Um, And that allows you to uh, register as an official party and to take party registrations. But Dan may may want to weigh in on the particulars. I actually don't know the particulars of Maine, but you hit it on the head almost uh, universally across the nation. Uh, To be honest, the electoral rules are stacked for the two major parties. Um, What generally happens, and I believe it's true in Maine as well, is the 
a party of the top two gubernatorial candidates uh, are automatically listed as a primary uh, of parties in primary contests. And in order to be a, a, a non-major uh, party uh, listed on the primary ballot, you have to circulate petitions. And the petition number varies uh, from state to state and from district to district. But it is essentially that the gubernatorial race outcome leads to the two parties and then petition gathering for any other party. Do you know the answer, Jill? Otherwise, Well, in, in Maine, there's not a distinction made between major parties and non-major parties. I, I do know that one other uh, sort of impediment, if you will, to people who are not in the major parties is the language of process within the legislature used to say if you were creating a commission, you would have this many people from the majority party and this many people from the minority party. As an independent, I wasn't even eligible to serve on any of those. But uh, my colleagues, I appreciate the fact that they were willing to change some of that language to recognize the fact that there are green independents, there are unenrolled voters and libertarians, various other people who are a part of the process now. And we have to make sure our language at least gives them the opportunity to be considered for those posts. So uh, since I posed the question, I'll give what information I know. You do have to get, I think it's 5,000 votes in the top of the ticket race. So you have to um, have 5,000 of your voters participating, I think, in the gubernatorial election in order to be a qualified party. And I think you also had, I think they allowed the libertarians to qualify by getting a certain number of people to enroll in the party. So there were sort of two thresholds there. And right now Maine has four qualified parties, the Libertarians, the Green Independents, the Democrats, and the Republicans. Um, so, uh, You know, I want to just interrupt uh, real quick um, the power of the Internet while we're talking about the difference <laughs> between open and closed primaries. Um, there's a study out from the University of Florida. It's about 7%. So um, I think, Kevin and Joe, you were right. It is, uh, you know, there is a bit of a boost, uh, about a 7% difference. That's yep. not insignificant. That's, no, that's no, good. It's, 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 it's pretty good. That's yeah. pretty good, yeah. 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 Um, so I keep seeing the phone line flash here. I don't know if we have somebody on the line or not. One minute, we do have somebody on the line. And it is Gina from Belgrade. Go ahead, Gina. Hi, good morning. Yes, I have a question. Um, I was just wondering if there's been any data that has been gathered about actually how many independents are going to the booth and changing their party uh, to vote in the primaries. Um, you know, I know there's some speculation that they are voting, but, I mean, we should be able to count how many independents are actually going to the voting booth and declaring a party and voting in the primaries or the caucuses. Do, do any of you have any data about that? I don't have the data, but you would have to count both the people who are going in on Election Day and registering in a party and then also count the people who after 90 days got out because otherwise they could be new people in town who had registered in that party or people who had decided to go from Republican or independent to Democrat or or the other way around. So you would have to kind of know who not only registered on the day of – but who then withdrew as soon as they could thereafter. And I I assume those withdrawals would be public information, yeah? I think you probably can get that without name and address stuff right. from the Secretary Right, but you would know the number of right. people who... But you'd have to look at the unenrollment 
on that 90-day mark, yes, right? Yes, exactly. Right. Yep. You know, I've always been struck by the fact that um, when I was uh, serving in the Senate and running for election and re-election, uh, running into people who didn't know what party they belonged to. Uh, or had, you know, jumped back and forth and said, well, I don't know where I am right now. I, I remember I registered Republican to vote in such and such a primary. And or uh, and then you also have people who go to the polls uh, fully expecting that they're a member of one party only to find out mm-hmm. that actually they're a member of the other party because they forgot that they had done that. Right. Um, so, you know, I just <laughs> – and, and, then, and then they can't vote in the primary they wanted to because – it's you know they're there and, and they're well, in the that, other party. That's a good point. I'll make a little public service announcement right here. If you are enrolled in a party and you want to change in time to vote on election day, you have to change 15 days in advance. Mm-hmm. So if you are already enrolled, you have to think think ahead. If you're not enrolled, you can enroll on election day. Right. So everybody check. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. Um, we have another call on the line. It's Bob from Dedham. Go ahead, Bob. Thank you for taking my call. I represent Mainers for Open Elections, an organization that was formed to advocate for an election system to all eligible voters, not just party members, and for laws that help increase voter participation. Hey, Bob, yes. Bob, we're getting a little feedback. Can you turn off the radio? Yes. Well, thank you. Okay, go ahead. Much better. He's making his way right. back to sorry. the phone. Sorry about that. That's all right. It's better now. We believe that closed primaries are not working for voters, for they exclude the roughly 40% of independent voters who choose not to enroll in a party in order to participate in primary elections. They do nothing to advance the quality of our democracy. In March 2017, Mainers for Open Elections and Open Primaries, a national leader, on election reform, conducted a study of 771 Maine voters that that shed light on the disconnect between Maine voters and the current political system. Survey identifies broad support for reforming the state's primary elections. Some of the findings from that study include 81% of Maine voters feel that congressional representatives do best for their party rather than the voters. 80% of Maine voters want independent voters who make up around 40% of Maine's electorate included in primary elections. 73% of voters believe taxpayer-funded primaries should be open to all voters, not just party members. Support for opening the primaries in Maine runs deep across all demographics with majorities of women, 81%, men, 73%, Democrats, 74%, Republicans, 68%, and Independents, 87%. Only one in three voters believe that Maine's elected leaders have been successful at bringing voters together. You can read the whole study by logging on to openprimaries.org's website. Political pundits and media sources believe that the single largest impediment to voter participation is the closed primary system that excludes everyone who declines to join a political party. Membership in a political party should not be a prerequisite for casting a ballot. Hey, Bob? Yes? I'm going to ask you to wrap it up. Uh, I want to to address 
Ryan's issue of Democrats crossing over and voting in Republican uh, primaries and vice versa. Um, I think we've answered that. There's no evidence that people really do that, Bob. You know, do but I do have I do have a thought that I want to add to this. That, you know, I think my guess is the core of the issue to make the nominees better reflect the electorate in Maine is mostly a turnout issue. And this is what I mean by that. I think it's a mistake to assume that independents aren't ideological. We've got a lot of evidence to suggest that independents will often push to one side or the other rather heavily, right? Even more, they'll vote more consistently for a party than people who say that they're partisan but only lean to the one party. So a lot of independents are conservative and and progressive or liberal. So I worry that well, what happens is, even if we make this move, if turnout doesn't drive up, so, and the most ideological voters are the ones that turn out, both the Republicans, Democrats, and independents, I'm not sure we'll get to where, where we want until we really focus in on getting more people to the polls. And the point's made that you will get more people to the poll with an open system. Okay, I, 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 I agree with that. But I think even more beyond that, to be honest. Bob's uh, data make me think about the fact that with those really very large percentages of all kinds of cuts of the population supporting this kind of thing, it's curious that although bills are submitted in the legislature to change our primary system in one way or another, they never go anywhere. So it seems to me that most party members seem to feel comfortable with the existing system. And as long as we have to go through the legislative process to change it, we're, we're not going to get there. Yeah. Hey, our well, listen- that goes back to the fact that uh, uh, with the notable exception of, of, of Jill – uh, independents are not really uh, represented in in the legislature in any meaningful way, in terms of you know having a voice on this issue. Uh, the people who are in the legislature are the products of uh, the system that's in place, and so they're either, for the most part, uh, a Democrat or Republican who got there through the current system. So I think there's I think there's a just a natural inertia. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. in in that situation. Yeah, and there is an interesting situation now in the House where there are seven people who are some form or another of independent or unenrolled voter, and the numbers are close enough that that block of seven could change an outcome of any partisan issue. It won't if the parties unite against open primaries, but um, they are aware of that influence that they have and there are issues on which they have differing opinions themselves but there are some issues on which they can agree and could actually make some major system changes Um, for instance if that group said we will vote for the republican candidate for speaker of the house if that speaker agrees that committee chairmanships will be shared on a prorated basis based on the percentage of members of the body. Um, That would be a huge change. And uh, empowering one side or the other to have the speaker is big influence. Of course, those seven people 
cover a very broad ideological. Yes, they do. Right. And, and they true. freely acknowledge that there are times when they can't work as a group, but there are times when, when they, they can, can and they're considering how to do that. Yep. Um, our listener lines are open, 866-625-9378 or 469-0500 if you're calling locally. We're talking about primary elections this morning on the Democracy Forum. Um, Maine is considering some changes between um, primary caucus in its presidential election system. Right now, Maine has a presidential caucus system. We've had primary elections for president before for a couple of years. And then we went back to caucuses, and then in 2016, many people had a disastrous experience at the caucus, and there was some thought of going back to primary. Um, what do you think about caucuses versus primaries? Kevin? Yeah, I, I'm on record uh, as favoring primaries. Uh, I believe that uh, in the same way that a, a semi-open primary uh, encourages more participation than a closed primary, a primary encourages more participation than a caucus. Uh, and when I was in the, the main Senate, I actually introduced uh, a bill uh, for a presidential primary to restore the presidential primary in Maine, uh, which unfortunately um, did, was not passed. But um, I think, as I have stated earlier, anything that encourages uh, more participation, I think, is a healthy thing for the for the process, and and I know there are so many uh, reasons that people have that make it difficult to get to a caucus. Um, you know, whether it's your 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 work obligations, uh, travel, whatever. Whereas with a primary, uh, you can vote absentee uh, if you have to, but it's going to open it up to a, a lot more participation. What's going to happen to that bill, Jill? Do you know? That was the bill that you put in when you were in office. That, well, that was back in uh, yeah, back in two thousand eleven or twelve. But this, I guess, there's a bill. Well, just an update. Yeah. So after after the twenty sixteen primary, the legislature passed a bill restoring the primary election in time for the twenty twenty presidential mm-hmm. election, but they didn't appropriate any money, and they wrote a sunset clause into it. So unless the money is appropriated, the bill sunsets at the end of this year. Mm. So the legislature now has the choice during this session whether to appropriate the money to cover the municipal costs of adding another election or um, let the bill die. There are quite a few very difficult fiscal issues in front of the legislature this session, and so none of those can be remotely considered uh, a shoe-in. Yep. And uh, philosophically, I think I would venture to guess that the bill would be supported, and it has been. Um, but financially, there are a number – I mean, I think of everything from the, the jail in Washington County that needs some additional funding and all kinds of opiate um, – so it's very difficult to say that any bill with a fiscal note is safe until the final dollars are accounted. Good. It's always the argument, you know, against a primary. But I, I just don't know how you put a price tag on democracy. I just, to me, it's fundamental. Right. It's really fundamental to the state that you would you would fund uh, what is necessary to provide for elections. Thank you. And Kevin. if we're already going to the polls, why does it cost that much more money? 
Just right. preparation of a ballot? Well, it's a whole other election. Because it's a different. It, it would be not in the June primary. Mm. It would be at the presidential primary in March. So it would be throwing a whole other mm. election to the cycle. But hey, we no, have Why not take a look at changing Maine's primary date so that yeah. it's somewhere in the middle and it makes us relevant nationally and still works for the mm-hmm. state? Do it all at once. Mm-hmm. We have another caller on the line. I hope he's still there. Willis from Ellisett, go ahead. Hello. Um, I'm uh, I'm uh, interested in the, the, the different models of... Uh, of open primary that you're talking about. And, and one thing you folks haven't talked about is uh, the idea that a, a primary should be for the voters, not for the party. And uh, one way that I think that would really work well is that uh, there is no party affiliation on your voter registration. You are a voter. If you'd like to affiliate with a party, that's between you and the party. And and then that... Um, the, uh, the primary ballot includes all candidates from any party or no party. And then the voter gets to choose two of all of those candidates so that it, it works as a runoff at the same time to narrow down two candidates for the general election. I think it would um, solve a lot, a lot of problems about uh, uh, minority candidates winning posts. And uh, I think it would also uh, spark a lot more interest in primaries in general and, and uh, put a lot more uh, money into that field. So, Kevin, oh, Kevin uh, Willis, thank you for that comment. I mean, it sounds like a top two or a jungle-type primary. Dan, how are those working in states that have them now? Well, in California, it simply leads to a general election of two progressive candidates. But is that, you know, if that's the reflection of the voters of that state, why is that a problem? Well, I'll tell you. I've got some thoughts on that. It, it's interesting, and and I know, um, I mean, I as a, again, as an old parties person, I kind of rub up against this idea that the nominations are the same as elections. The general election is the election, so the idea is that each party would put forward a candidate and also a slate of candidates that, you know, holds a set of positions that they're, that they're, you know, offering to the electorate. So the idea is if you like what the Republicans are offering, you'd vote for the Republican candidate for governor and for, for the state house and the Senate and so forth. So the, the Republican platform would move forward. Uh, I think top two models really disintegrate this idea of Sort of the relationship between the legislative party and the, and the governor's party. Um, I kind of like the idea of the voters being offered two very clear different perspectives. Um, I think in California, for example, what you wind up with is, again, two, yeah, that it is a liberal state, is a progressive state, so in the general election you wind up with two progressives and there's not even another it's it, it is a contest between which of the two candidates is is sort of more in the center of the progressive party well in, in louisiana in louisiana yeah. uh you probably end you're ending up with two conservative candidates right and so you can, there can be other anomalies so in california for example if it's a dominant democratic district and you have two Democrats running and five Republicans, or the other way around, if you have five Democrats running, Democratic district, and two Republicans, the Democrats can so split the vote that the two Republicans advance and a predominantly Democratic district 
can choose from only two conservative candidates in the general election. So th- there are some anomalies that can come up with top, with top two. But um, we have another... If you don't mind, one more real quick. You know, one of the functions of elections is to educate voters. And I worry that in general elections with, say, two right or two left centered candidates, the other side doesn't get any airing. All right, so it will be the losing side, you know, in Louisiana and California. But at least the voters are hearing from the other side. Yep. Uh, we have another caller on the line. This is probably our last call. Tom from Stuben. Go ahead. Hi. Um, I think my concern in listening to this conversation is simply what I would call uh, vote marginalization. As engineered, uh, starting about 30 years ago, uh, in you know, planned by the Koch brothers, it, in a way that whether you were uh, talking about electronic uh, vote rigging or uh, gerrymandering or uh, marginalization of a candidate by by bringing in third or maybe even fourth party people, uh, that there's there's a way in which looking at the local uh, picture or looking at primaries for national purposes almost becomes irrelevant. And and I think it's it's worked effect, uh, particularly well in the East. Like, it doesn't matter what we think. Uh, they're better at engineering votes than we are. What do you think, uh, Dan? Well, there's a, there's a lot to that. You know, on the gerrymandering issue, there's, it's absolutely unequivocal that after 2010, the Democrats have had a tough go at it, and the evidence is overwhelming. Just keep in mind that the Democrats put it to the Republicans for a long time as well. Right. And And, uh, tune into our show next month when we'll be talking about that very topic, gerrymandering. Yeah, my my foremost concern, to be very quick, is voter suppression moves. I mean, uh, they're happening all over, particularly since uh, the meat of the the Voting Rights Act was, uh, was, was howled out. That's really where it's at. States moving on restrictive access to the polls. Eliminating early voting and voter IDs and so forth. Yeah, I, I want to respond to um, the issue of the platform that Dan raised in terms of giving voters a choice between do two different philosophies and so on. I, I wonder what Kevin thinks about this, but I, a part of the questions surrounding our elections now have to do with the fact that the platforms are not considered relevant by the parties themselves. When I decided to run as an independent, I I assumed I'd have to join a party. I read both platforms, and to me, they ranged from the overreaching to the appalling. And party members inevitably said to them, don't worry about them. That's something somebody does somewhere nationally, and that has nothing to do with who we are as a party. Well, it is the statement of the party. And so is the platform, as Dan was kind of musing about, any kind of a representation of what the party's thinking so that the electorate could make decisions based on um, what the overall party says, because it doesn't seem like its members agree about those things either. Okay, we are running out of time. And um, I want to just bring us back to primary elections. What are they good for? And ask each of you to make a few closing comments as we um, head out before the music comes up. So, Kevin, go ahead. Well, I guess uh, just to encapsulate, I believe that uh, primaries are a vast improvement 
uh, over caucuses in terms of, you know, broadening the participation of, of American voters. Uh, but I believe that they could be improved. Uh, and I believe having uh, not a not a purely open primary, but a more open primary would be a very healthy thing for, for democracy, uh, ultimately uh, for the tone and tenor uh, of the country. Go ahead, Jill. Giving more voters a voice in who we will be able to vote for in a general election is very important to me. You can say a few more words. We have a little more All time. All right. <laughs> um, and I agree that um, there there are perfections that, that could be made, but I am not sure that I see a route to those other than a referendum election. And right now that whole process is under question in Maine too. And that's probably a whole other show. Dan, uh, parting thoughts? You have a couple minutes here. Go ahead. Well, I think uh, Kevin's right about caucuses. They're horrible. I mean, just sometimes the turnout is in the tune of 5 and 8%. And it's particular, again, it's not simply that it's just a 5 or 8%, but it's a particular type of 5 and 8%. You know, some voters, the most ideological, will figure out how to get to that caucus. So uh, I'm not a fan of caucuses. I do think the key is in getting more people into the process. Um, I'm not sure if top two or open uh, primaries is the best route, but it's worth considering. I do hope that some states begin to tinker with, uh, with the voting model. How do we get this done for primaries, for primaries? I'm a huge fan of Election Day for general election. I think it should be a state and national holiday. People should have it off and so forth. But for the primaries... Might we consider another way of getting this done over the course of a week or through the Internet? Oh, that's radical. Yep. (laughs) Hey, we are running out of time now, and I hear the music coming up. So um, I want to thank our guests this morning, Jill Goldthwaite, the political columnist, Kevin Ray, longtime Republican politician, and Dan Shea, professor of government at Colby College. It was a great conversation. You've been listening to the Democracy Forum, a project of the League of Women Voters Down East, produced in cooperation with WERU-FM. Thank you to Amy Brown, our engineer today at WERU, and thank you to our listeners. Our website is lwvme.org for more information about this topic or to learn about other shows in the series. Um, We'll see you here next month. That's uh, Friday, March 16th. Our Our topic will be partisan gerrymandering. We'll look forward to seeing you then. Support for WERU comes from our generous listeners.